This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give special thank yous to Autumn Corvus, Marco Reagan, Michael Hannon, and Jonathan Wilson, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to R.K. Mink, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. All right, and so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 385 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is John Hodgman. He was a regular contributor on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and also starred opposite Justin Long as the PC in the popular Get a Mac series of TV ads. He's had many other small roles in movies such as Coraline and TV shows such as Battlestar Galactica, and is the author of several books, including the fake trivia book The Areas of My Expertise and the Memoir Vacation Land. He's also the host of the humorous advice podcast Judge John Hodgman. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book Medallion Status, about what it's like to gain and then lose the perks of being a minor celebrity. And now here's our interview with John Hodgman. All right, so we're here with John Hodgman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So how'd you first get interested in fantasy and science fiction? I was a weird only child. There was nothing left for me <laughs> <laughs> but fantasy and science fiction. I mean, it's interesting. I am much more of a fantasy and science fiction genre person when it comes to television or, and movies than books. I remember John Wolfe was reading The Lord of the Rings back in, like, I want to say third grade. Too early. John Wolfe could hack it. I could not. I tried. John Wolfe being? A friend of mine not right. in elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I've not been in touch with him lately. If he's a listener. Hey, John, how are you doing? How's your family? Um, please, I went to the Heath Elementary School in Brookline, Massachusetts. And um, I'd have to do a little bit of uh, remembering. But I, re- I recall that the Ralph Bakshi animated version of the Lord of the Rings came out in, uh, I guess, probably around 1979 would be my guess. And I saw it and my mind was blown for a number of reasons. One, because that was really my first introduction to the fantasy subgenre. Already I had known to some degree about science fiction, but I had a, a, a imperfect education in science fiction because I was introduced to science fiction by Star Wars, which I am old enough to have seen in the theater and was in totally enraptured by. But that, of course, is not science fiction. That is also fantasy for reasons we can discuss later. Um, but Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings, this is the animated The Lord of the Rings, which only tells the story from the Fellowship of the Ring up to about halfway through the Two Towers. It was designed to be a two-part thing. And well, he, the, he ran out of money, I think, right? Right, yes, and confidence. <laughs> His, I'm sure he had confidence in himself, but the people who were going to give him money lost confidence in him. And it's a very strange and psychedelic movie, as well as a very interesting and, and I think, at heart, very faithful adaptation of the books. But to have gone and seen that movie with my dad, expecting the 
you know, the tightness of the three act structure that Star Wars sort of imprinted upon, you know, genre movie making from then till now, and instead have this thing dwindle off with Samwise and Frodo and this creepazoid Gollum wandering through the the mountains alone and unsure of their fates was a real a real head game for me. And so I think I tried to dig into The Lord of the Rings as a book around that time, found it well, well, well beyond my ken. It was not until um, my late 20s when uh, they were about to make the new uh, Peter Jackson was about to make The Lord of the Rings. I was like, I bet I, I maybe better revisit this. And, and so I did. But I would say, you know, for me, it was all I was a, a child of a fairly vibrant time in the, in the, in the genre, which was, you know, I was born in 1971. So in the late seventies, early eighties, I got to watch Tom Baker turn into Peter Davison on Dr. Who I was a big PBS nerd. I was equally, a, you know, a, a, a WGBH's mystery nerd. So I was also watching a lot of Hercule Poirot and stuff, anything that was on PBS. I was into Monty Python, obviously, and Doctor Who was a big point of entry for science fiction for me. Star Wars was a a, a massive influence uh, upon our generation. Though I was also, you know, I had my share of Space 1999 on Channel 56. In terms of other, uh, you know, other sort of fantasy science fiction genre, Creature Double Feature on Channel 56 was a Saturday afternoon double feature of weirdo monster movies that I really enjoyed, uh, and so on and so forth. But as I say, mostly... It wasn't until I was really into my 20s and, and even now still discovering uh, science fiction and fantasy as a written genre. I did my share. I did my share of time with the Starship Troopers and stuff, both book and obviously movie later. But mostly I'm a, I'm a TV and movie person. You say in the book that it was a long held childhood theory that you were an android. How, uh, how long held are we talking about? Well, I, I, you know, I guess I had this idea probably around the time that Blade Runner came out when I was about 10. I was looking for any explanation as to why I was so odd. You know, as an only child, I was a member of the worldwide super smart, afraid of conflict narcissist club. I was a, I was a, I was a strange, lonely child whose primary companions were comic books and movies and TV. Like all only children, I lacked any, uh, 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 particularly only children who had no interest in sports. I lacked any, any sort of ritualized conflict, whether that's fighting with a sibling or, you know, confronting an enemy on the field of sports that would allow me to think that conflict could be anything other than fatal. Like I was just <laughs> so, I, and, and by conflict, or I mean, even basic human confrontation, like emotional intimacy or hugging or kissing another human being felt to me so high stakes because I hadn't had confrontation sort of normalized for myself. So I, I spent a lot of my uh, childhood and what we now call tweenhood um, being terrified of um, adolescence and sexuality. So by the time I was 11, 12, 13, uh, I, w I was hiding out in one sort of wing of our ridiculously enormous house for the, th the three of us, my mom and dad and I, and, um, you know, imagining, tr you know, trying to leapfrog sexual adolescence and become what I thought I was, the, you know, the sexless gentleman bachelor that I thought I was destined to become. So I just spent a lot of time 
cultivating pretensions and writing poetry on a manual typewriter and re- reading, you know, Tom Stoppard plays and um, obviously a lot of time in, in the fantasy worlds that I found to be, you know, uh, exhilarating, like Dr. Who and stuff. I mean, in the introduction you wrote for Game of Thrones, you said that you actually went through a phase, though, where you you were sort of a snob and didn't like fantasy. No, no, well, I, I think that that's because uh, that's interesting. Uh, I think that that's because I um, by the time I read Game of Thrones, I was late coming to that that particular uh, Westeros party. Uh, I didn't, I'd heard about the, the TV show being made before I was aware of the books and I had read Lord of the Rings. I had read and forged deep connection with certain touchstones, classic touchstones, genre defining touchstones of fantasy and science fiction. So I had a huge connection to Dune, both the novel and the, and the various movies of it, which are fascinatingly weird. Um, you know, of a, of a fantasy of a different kind. Watership down was an incredibly important book for me. I was, I was definitely on board with the weird and the unusual in terms of how narrative is told, but I was not someone who had spent a lot of time in the realm of just sort of, I don't want to say run of the mill, but just sort of, you know, a, a st- standard sword and sorcery type stuff. I was a snob about, standard sword and sorcery type stuff because I felt that the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien had explored that world so thoroughly. And if you were going to have a fantasy that could be set in any kind of world, why keep reverting to this one particular fantasy of essentially medieval England, you know, um, or a gloss on knights and swords and dragons and so forth. I mean, were you reading fantasy books that you didn't like, or it was just sort of this more theoretical no, abstract? No, no, I wasn't. I mean, I I couldn't really point to I, I I couldn't I wasn't reading a whole lot of fantasy at the time. I was seeing a lot of stuff being published that had dragons on the cover, right? And I don't want to point to particular authors that I felt like were just sort of j- journey persons in this world of kind of writing hacky sword and sorcery science uh, fantasy, I should say. So I, I don't want to point to those people because it's unfair. I bet I didn't read their works. I bet their works had a lot more merit than I than I realized. And my comeuppance came when I read A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin, because initially I'm reading it going, This is dumb. Like it's very readable, but come on, this is this is not our planet. This is another world. Why why does this universe on the one hand have weird white walkers in it and magic, but on the other hand, adhere to these conventions of feudal England around the time of the war of the roses. What is the possible explanation of this? Why is this, why does this deserve space? How did you trick me into reading this book that has actual dragons in it? Do you know what I mean? Now that was where, that's where I was a true snob. And I wouldn't say that I was necessarily a snob about science fiction and fantasy as a written genre per se, uh, it wasn't my world, and I knew people liked it. I just didn't understand. I didn't understand conceptually why we kept going back to this particular well of medieval England fetishizing, right? With you know classic D and D type tropes. And what I learned, and as I say, it was my comeuppance, 
what George R. R. Martin did to beyond justify re-inhabiting this world was that he re-examined it. A, much more, I mean, whereas Tolkien was doing this fantastic and amazing literary gloss on not only uh, medieval epics, but also Norse Eddas and also sort of cozy domestic novels uh, of, of mid-century Little England. I mean, the whole, the whole opening, uh, the whole Shire portion of the Lord of the Rings is just essentially, it's like, it's Miss Marple. Do you know what I mean? Um, without, a, with, with a very light mystery to it. And then it turns into this whole different kind of literary genre. It's, asto- it's an astonishing piece of work. What George R. R. Martin did was much more historically rooted in, in the history and technology of, uh, and, uh, and, and, and battlefront technology of, uh, the War of the Roses period in England, and also was brave enough to, I think, maybe not for the first time, but for the first time for me, suggest this fantasy world, which has been so dominant in the genre of fantasy, of sort of m- medieval sword and sorcery and castles and stuff, is actually a place that you would never fantasize about living. Mm-hmm. Because for uh, uh, for almost everyone in this world, except for a few aristocrats, this is a miserable place to live where you die at the age of 30 routinely, even if you're lucky, where there is disease, where there is rape as a tool of war, where there is absolute degradation and dis- disregard for human life, uh, ex- un- unless you come from a particular noble feudal household. So that to me was like, oh, this is upending the the, in- the entire genre of quote unquote sword and sa- sorcery quasi-medieval English history fantasy by showing you that this is a miserable place to live. Um, and also, I mean, George R. R. Martin, I, I, I don't, has become such a cultural figure at this point that I almost feel like he doesn't get the credit he deserves for being such a magnificent inhabitor of different voices. And because the books are so overtaken by the cultural phenomenon, which is the TV show, uh, it is easy to forget or disregard that the the books are told from massively disparate points of view, and every one of them feels like a completely true and whole human being, whether they are highborn or lowborn, man or woman or X. I mean, it's just an incredible work of literary art that that absolutely defines its own space and and really taught me a lot about what I should be paying attention to in fantasy and science fiction. Yeah, I kind of went through a similar journey. I mean, in my case, I, I was actually reading a lot of fantasy and, and just I read a lot of the, say, the less distinguished Dragonlance novels and things like that that kind of turned me off on it. And and again, with me, George R. R. Martin brought me back to it. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're definitely yeah. not alone there. And I don't want to talk down sort of, let, I mean, I, I don't want to use a, a particular pejorative term like hacky. That's not what I mean. But just sort of, you know, r- r- let's say m- mid mid list. That's a publishing term, meaning uh, that doesn't really exist anymore. But like, it, you know, meaning not not particularly literarily distinguished, but it it hits its marks as a story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And my mom devoured crime fiction uh, when I was growing up, and she devoured detective fiction of all kinds, and she <laughs> frequently. Uh, she she would frequently stop in the middle of a book and be like, oh, in the middle of the book and be like, oh, I read this one. <laughs> I was like, mom, 
how can you have read this one? How do you not know halfway through this P.D. James novel or whatever that you'd already read it? And she was like, I don't know. Now, of course, I do know. For one, I'm the age she was when, when I was criticizing her for that, and I don't remember my own name most of the time. And two, the, there are a cert, there's a certain kind of uh, there's a certain kind of series genre book, whether it's in fantasy, science fiction, crime, thriller, romance, or whatever, where the job isn't to arrest you and make you rethink everything you thought you knew about a story or a genre or your place in society or whatever it is. It's there to distract you and make you feel okay. Like to be comfortable and to remind you, um, of the previous books that you read in this series to allow you, to, especially if it's a ser- if a, if it's a long series of books to allow you to spend time with your friends, uh, in those books, those characters that you, that you like, you know, it's, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a kind of middling g- genre satisfying as opposed to genre defying type of book or movie or television show or whatever. Every now and then you just need something to read, for comfort and to, and to bring you into that world for a little bit so that you can go back to sleep um, when you can't fall asleep because of stuff that's going on in this, in this real life, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think there's, I think there's honor in that. And I don't mean to talk down authors who fulfill that genre. Um, that, that is to say the, the genre satisfying types of books, as opposed to the genre renewing or defying or exploring types of books. Right. Let me see. I, I didn't know until I started preparing for this interview how much of a literary background you had in terms of being a literary agent and McSweeney's and palling around with Dave Eggers and all this stuff and that you actually – that you were an author or that's sort of what led to your career in entertainment. I thought that was really interesting. So, Yeah, I was never supposed to entertain anyone. I was supposed, <laughs> to, be an, was supposed to be an author of obscure books of, of weird metafiction and you know that, that happened to be a little bit funny. So – yeah, I, I come from a book background, or I should say, a, 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 a professionally, I started in a book publishing background, which was I worked at, at a literary agency trying to avoid being a writer by hanging around writers and taking a small portion of their income. That eventually ended in around 2000, once I'd started writing for McSweeney's, and my mom passed away, and I kind of had this life moment where I realized I wasn't spending my life the way I wanted to, and I made the break and then became a writer. But even then it was as a journey person, freelance magazine writer. That's what I was supposed to do. But as I understand it, they just booked you as a author guest on the daily show and they just liked you so much. They invited you to come back. Yeah, that's, that's true. I had written a book of rather arch, weird, absurd humor called the areas of my expertise, which was a, uh, a, a book that pretended to be, sort of your classic bathroom trivia book. Um, but all of the amazing true facts and historical trivia in my book were made up by me. So rather than have a list, say, of the nine U.S. presidents who you know, smoked 30 or more cigars a day or something equally sort of interesting about presidential history, it would be the nine U.S. presidents who secretly had hooks for hands, like mm-hmm. pirates. And I would write the story about how you know, FDR had a hook for a hand, but the press never wrote about it. And they always photographed him from the wrist up. So you wouldn't know, which is, of course, a reference to FDR having polio and having not be discussed. And that was the weird that was the kind of weird stuff that I was doing at the time. And um, much to my um, uh, amazement, they invited me to be on the 
show as a guest. And then to my complete incredulity, they invited me to be uh, specifically John and Ben Carlin, the executive producer at the time, invited me to come back as a as a contributor to continue this weird personality that I had forged in the book and in, on McSweeney's and on the show of this resident expert, the sort of tweedy academic who could be brought in to, to uh, straight-facedly uh, tell a whole lot of weird lies. Now, I've never been a guest on a late-night talk show, which I think is sort of an oversight on their part, but... What I've heard is that they tell you don't try to be funny because you don't want some, you know, historian who's written a book about the Civil War making his comedy debut in front of millions of people. You know, (laughs) Um, were you did they tell you don't try to be funny? And did you try to be funny anyway? No, they certainly didn't tell me to not try to be funny. I think it's different when you I mean, even even though I was not a comedian when I went on the show as a guest the book itself was openly comical and designed to be ha ha funny. Mm-hmm. So they didn't tell me to not be ha ha funny. <laughs> that would have served nobody's purposes. Um, I, and you know, the daily show, every show is different in terms of what sort of coaching and or rehearsal they give to the guest. So like all of the shows, I had a pre-interview um, with the booker and sort of, she asked me some questions that maybe John might be interested in asking. And I sort of listened to the questions and then told her the parts of the book and my experience that I thought might connect. And we sort of worked through it that way. And then John and I just had a conversation because he's a really super duper interviewer. Um, other shows that I've been on, it's much more detailed. Um, a pre-interviewer will call and have a conversation with me maybe two or even three times to really hammer out, the whole conversation in advance, not that it would be scripted, but to make sure that the timing works and we know exactly the host would know exactly uh, what to ask and what I was going to say and how to move through it. So no surprises. It's really just depends on the the style of the individual host and the kind of show that um, she or he, unfortunately, it's mostly he still uh, wants to do. So have other people been booked as author guests and gone on to be regulars on a show like The Daily Show? Or are you kind of the the solitary example of that? I don't think I'm the, the only example. I think there, I believe that Dave Gorman, who is a British comedian who was on The Daily Show for a while as a contributor, this is, you know, way back again before, before you were born when <laughs> I was starting, you know, um, I think that he was a sh- on the show as a guest first. It's not tip. It's not highly typical, um, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to say that I'm the only one. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was a, a huge fan of the Daily Show back in the day. You know, I, I watched it all the time. But one thing I always thought was a, a major weakness of the show was the lack of science fiction writers that they would book as guests. Did you ever <laughs> uh, talk to anyone about that? Or I had no. I had no say over the booking in any way. Uh. I felt lucky that I got on the show as an author of a non-overtly political book because The Daily Show's mission primarily was to, you know, even by the time, well, especially by the time I started, we were, you know, in the middle of the second term of George W. Bush. The Daily Show had emerged as uh, as a real voice of political conscience on from a certain point of view. And John was covering the news. So the first people that would get on would be newsmakers within the political world and and observers within that world. 
and then also John's friends from comedy and that sort of thing. And very rarely, I mean, this was the the thing about the daily show that distinguished it, which was that, um, we, they, John were not particularly interested in having the star of the biggest movie on television. Um, he, they would rather have, uh, 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 you know, then state Senator Barack Obama on the show uh, or an interesting author like Sarah Vowell talking about history or what have you. So I, I got lucky in that, in that regard. And as far as science fiction and fantasy authors, it wasn't long until it wasn't long after I was on the show that Colbert started the Colbert rapport and boy, oh boy, he was able to bring in some great authors. <laughs> like that's where, you know, he had Neil Gaiman on, um, you know, Colbert's interests are obviously and very interested in science fiction and fantasy as a, as a genre. And he's a real reader of this stuff. So that, that made sense that he, that he would cover that where John probably wouldn't have much to say to those guys or women. Yeah. The, the only one I really remember was Greg Bear was on one time, but it was not, it was talking about more of a techno thriller novel than a, um, you know, than a science fiction novel. But yeah. I feel like, you know, you're saying that, you know, they were, the subject was mostly politics, but I feel like there was a time like, I don't know, in the era of the Dick Cavett show and stuff where they would have novelists on to talk about is issues of the day, like Norman Mailer or people like that. And that sort of yeah. fell out of fashion somehow. Well, yes. I mean, you know, <laughs> anyone who starts a talk show always says, I wish it could be like the Dick Cavett show again. And Dick Cavett, who's a acquaintance of mine and a hero of mine, curated a very peculiar kind of talk show. Uh, one that brought in a whole bunch of sort of cross-cultural interdisciplinary voices to have a conversation with each other. And certainly, you know, there was a moment of vogue in the 60s and 70s, even on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, um, that would bring in big, you know, big name novelists, as you say, to talk about the issues of the day. And they were people kind of like Gorby Dollar, Norman Mailer, these these sort of like big archetypal macho social novel, you know, no, no, novelists of the social scene or what have you. And that has, that has to a degree faded away. Um, and if you want one of those free flowing conversations, now you go to podcasts, basically, you know, late night shows have, it's not merely that they don't book novelists so much. It's that they very rarely book someone who isn't, massively influential uh on another platform whether that be movies uh or increasingly social media um because the the dynamics and the economics of television has changed television is just trying to stay on television it's not it's not making the taste it's following the taste and so i think that's why you see very few shows aside from like the daily show with trevor noah and to a degree, Colbert, of course, you know, bringing on interesting people just because the guest or I should say the host thinks that they're interesting, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the book, uh, you're, you're speaking of your time at the literary agency and you say um, we would eat food encouraged by our indulgent bosses who saw in us not the future of their industry, non-existent, but their own past. Is yeah. that kind of how you see publishing as sort of having a non-existent future? Or? No, not at all. I mean, it was such a weird time to enter book publishing because, you know, in the early 1990s, or I should say the the late early 1990s, let's put it, <laughs> let's, let's make it very clear. I started my job in 1994 as the receptionist at Writer's House, a, a, a still thriving literary agency uh, in Manhattan. 
Um, in fact, it was thriving then, but is thriving even more now for, for reasons. Um, but at the time, it felt a given within the industry that no one read anymore, that literature and books were not socially important, that the job was not to find and curate n- new writers of interesting fiction of any genre. That was sort of a side hustle that you would do just to be just for fun. But the job was really to get Whoopi Goldberg to write a book or whatever the biggest celebrity in television was at the time. Uh, one of the big, big book deals, of course, was um, trying to remember the the Brett Butler, the woman who starred in Grace Under Fire, a 90s sitcom, had a huge, huge book deal. That was a big deal. Of course, she's an incredibly talented person, but not a lot of people remember Grace Under Fire now, right? This was all during the early to mid-90s. This was the feeling. And Barnes & Noble was coming in and taking out all of the mom-and-pop bookshops out of New York City just devastating them with these massive mega stores that were given over to books that had a tie-in of some kind to television or celebrity or some other platform other than books. And what was equally disarming about this period in book publishing was that not many people felt like fighting these trends. Uh, Mostly uh, book publishing kind of kind of just sort of raised its lunchtime second martini and said, oh, well. <laughs> and and there was just this acceptance that this was a dying industry. Uh, and that acceptance was ill-considered and wrong. You know, one of the things, and I, I felt a kind of an interesting privilege to be part of book publishing during this transition. Because one of the things that I understood about publishing and observed, first of all, was that it was not a business for a lot of the people who had gone into it. In many ways, it had no business calling itself a business. Mm-hmm. Book publishing had emerged in uh, in New York in the 20th century as a, 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 a hobby industry for the black sheep sons and daughters of wealthy families. No one could enter book publishing and take an internship in book publishing unless they had family money backing them up. It was always, it was always a, a sort of romantic and romantically money losing business. And it was so on purpose because it was for people who didn't want to believe that money was important, but ideas were important and success, best selling success was often sniffed at and sneered at. These were the kinds of snobby, I mean, Genteel and in many ways kind of romantically appealing, but ultimately very snobby points of view that really were long settled into book publishing. And once books became less relevant, the people who were involved in the in the industry didn't really care and toasted its demise because they were going to fall back on their on their fortunes anyway. I'm really lucky that I got to work at a place like Writer's House, which never, never had literary, particular literary pretensions, but rather believed in authors who told stories and believed in authors who told stories that reached big, big, big audiences. You know, the, 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 the talents that made Writer's House feasible from the beginning were commercial fiction writers like Ken Follett and Nora Roberts and young adult fiction writers 
um, like the Sweet Valley High book, Francine Pascal. Um, she didn't write all those books, but she was the mind behind them and the Babysitter's Club stuff that literary New York really kind of like looked down their nose at. And there was this firm belief that we were dying and that was the end. And that's why I describe how young people coming into the industry, young blinkered former English and literary theory grads coming into the industry would be mentored and and treated to lunch by these older mentors and encouraged to go have lunch with each other, not because they were looking forward to a future of the industry, but because they saw in us a reflection of a past, a pastime and a, and a, and a industry that was soon going to vanish and we were going to vanish with it. Classic baby boomer stuff. Hmm. But what I did see at the same time were two major transitions. One, obviously the internet, uh, you know, changed all of culture and, and changed literary culture first. Uh, long before it changed music, long before it changed filmed entertainment, it changed books first and most notably why? Because it gave everyone who had access to a computer access to a worldwide audience for the written word. Uh, potentially it, it, it was the beginning of Amazon, uh, retailing books directly to consumers via the internet. Um, and it was, uh, the beginning, very, very early beginning of e-publishing, all of which were massive with, you know, set aside Amazon as a retailer because that's a, sort of a different trend. That that was more destabilizing to Barnes & Noble, right, than it was to book publishing. But the internet was the most democratizing thing to happen in the in, to the written word maybe in the history of the written word, even, you know, as more massive than the development of mechanical type and xerography and scenes. I mean, it was all of a sudden anyone who wished to write didn't have to go through the goal, the, the, you know, the gatekeepers of literary agents and publishers, unless they wanted to reach a certain kind of audience or maybe make some money. If they just wanted to get their work out there, they could for the first time in human history, arguably, at a price point that was lower than ever before in human history. An incredible, incredible exhilarating change in how, in, in how people got the written word out and an equally exhilarating reminder that people really care about the written word. People engage with the written word in a very deep and intimate way. And the, Contrary to what publishing believed about itself, that people weren't reading anymore, people were desperate and are desperate to read and desperate to read interesting, challenging stuff. As a young adult house, writer's house missed, initially missed the, uh, the train on, on the massive uh, shift in, in the young adult market. I mean, we had, and you know, look, I, I was only an observer and an assistant at the time. So I, I can't speak to any of the decision-making that happened back then, but let's just put it this way. We did not represent JK Rowling, right? <laughs> and JK Rowling single-handedly changed everyone's understanding of what the young adult market, what young adult readers want. They, nothing against any of the books that we sold them. There was a given that fewer, that kids would not read a, it was a given. Kids would not, very few kids would read if they read it all. They would be uh, young women. 
boys would never ever read. They were lost. And obviously Harry Potter came in and changed everyone's mind about what young people want to read, that they want real stories, that they want emotionally challenging stories, that they want long stories, and that they will be readers for life. And it was a massive, massively wonderful thing to observe all of these genteel older publishing people realize they were wrong. And then it was a really interesting thing to, to watch them, to observe them not realize how wrong they were and simply refuse to accept that it was happening. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about there being all this energy in books and podcasts and uh, social media, YouTube, all that kind of stuff, because a major theme of your book is that it's almost like you have to be on TV to be a real celebrity, whereas it seems from my point of view that there, there are a lot of advantages to being a podcaster um, as oh, yeah. to being on television. Yeah, I mean, I think that by the time I went on The Daily Show, you know, I, I had um, I had cultivated a, a certain a certain audience, very small audience of weirdos who knew me from the McSweeney's world. I had done some public radio. I had done This American Life back when it was only a radio show. Um, I had people in my life, or I should say, strangers in my life who knew my work and would say so, which is very interesting and satisfying and gratifying, you know, I don't think, and, and even once I was on the daily show, even then it was more like, Oh, there's John Hodgman. That's that, that's that guy from the daily show. I was still known for the work that I did. Right. The big shift for me was very soon after I went on the daily show as a contributor, I was asked to audition for and got this Apple ad campaign as the PC where, uh, suddenly, you know, instead of, Hundreds to thousands of people were aware of my work. Millions were, and I say work with a question mark because <laughs> millions were not aware of my work at all. Other, they were aware of my face, of all the things to be aware of, and 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 get money for. My face was the last thing that I thought. <laughs> you know, it just seemed impossible. And so, uh, you know, that that was a that's a very different. That was a the merest, the merest taste of a very different kind of dissociative fame where people uh, think of you as an image but do not connect with you as a human. Whereas I think you're absolutely right. Authors, even the most famous authors, and certainly podcasters and storytellers and comedians um, who create their own work and speak and work in these more intimate realms um share a very different and i think ultimately more gratifying relationship with their audience i mean like you talk about how um you know if you're fam if people recognize you in public that you know any mistake you make gets widely reported or can be um and it seems like if you're a podcaster you know you if you have a a, a relatively large audience you know you can say like oh i'm going to be in such and such city on this date who wants to meet up and you can have that experience of kind of feeling like a celebrity without having it be intruding into your life when you don't want it yeah i mean i feel like you know even at the the super height of my quote-unquote fame <laughs> it was not particularly intrusive first of all i wasn't all that famous but you know with in 2007 2008 2009 during the during the Apple ads, like I couldn't walk into an Apple store 
that got weird. Uh, people got, got it. Like the staff got really excited and started playing the ads on the TV. That was a very, <laughs> very strange and surreal experience. Um, but I think most of all, you know, the people, like I think of, uh, I think of Paul Rudd, you know, who's a guy I know pretty well and like all of humanity, I love him. Um, he is a person who has worked steadily for years and years and had various peaks and valleys. He is arguably at his most famous now. Um, and yet he can move through life pretty easily. I think mostly because he doesn't care about fame. And I think it's the people who get, you know, the, the, the celebrities who get really invested in how famous they are and maintaining a certain level of celebrity, uh, who then court the kind of intrusive, uh, press coverage, um, and, uh, and, and fan interaction. I think they court it unconsciously. They, they court paparazzi intrusion. They court by being secretive. They court um, people trying to break into their secret lives. Uh, and I think they do it unconsciously on purpose to feel like they're still relevant and important. Whereas if you don't, if you don't, if you act as though, and if you truly don't care, if you're cool, people will be cool to you. And if you really act as if you don't care, then people will forget all about you. And then you are me. <laughs> well, look, I, I thought I, I really liked this line. You're talking about these YouTubers that have millions of fans that your son likes, and you say they were wildly popular, and like all wildly popular things these days, no one had ever heard of them. And it's almost like that kind of real celebrity is uh, is vanishing into the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, it, there are still big superstars, um, but one of the things that is undeniable is that our culture is really changed just in the past you know 12 years since the advent of the phone the internet you know steve jobs put the internet into the palms of so many many more people who had had access to the internet before prior to the phone the internet was largely still a self-selected group of mostly mostly affluent white college people college educated people now all of a sudden you know, phones are bringing the internet and that connectivity. Uh, and now, and more recently, that ability to make and share media to a much, much larger audience. And consequently, uh, our, our attentions are split among many, many, many different channels of kinds of content and distribution of content than ever before. And in the book, Medallion Status by me, John Hodgman, the book I'm selling right now, uh, I talk about, you know, the contrast between going to the Emmys as a member of the cast of The Daily Show in 2008 versus going in 2015, which was the last year that Jon Stewart was eligible. And, uh, you know, history shows that he won that year. But all of a sudden, there were just so many more different shows, and so many more different categories and so much confusion as to what show fit into what category and People were being announced for shows that lots of people in the room had never heard of before. They they switched Orange is the New Black from being a drama to a comedy in order to get it considered for, for, for a particular category. It was just uh, the, the feeling of confusion in the room was really overwhelming. And as you know, in the meantime, that wasn't even taking into account 
all of these incredibly influential cultural people on YouTube and now on TikTok who are who are have audiences of millions of humans that no one in the room at the Emmys in 2019 would have ever heard of. Well, so speaking of award shows, why don't you tell us about hosting the Nebula Awards uh, in 2016? Yeah, I mean, that was an incredible experience for me. George R. R. Martin, who has since become a friend, I dare say, I'm surprised and fascinated to, to, to say that, but, you know, he, he and I met at, at, you know, a couple of after Emmys parties. I would always sneak into the HBO party because that was the cool one. And I was, I would always hang out with George R. R. Martin, A, because he's super cool, and B, because a George R. R. Martin party is a sit down party. <laughs> And that's what I like to do, sit down at a party. Um, Could you and, expand uh, on that a little bit more? Like, what is a sit-down party? Oh, it means you you sit down at a table and talk rather than stand. I just don't like to stand. There's less mingling. You just I just could sit down with George R. R. Martin and his wife, Paris, and we'd just talk about movies and stuff and comic books or whatever. And people would come around and see George R. R. Martin because he's, a, you know, everyone wants to, everyone wants to visit the king, you know, but... Um, that just, that's all I mean. Yeah, just, no, uh, he, he sort of holds court. I've seen it. He holds the, court. The Brotherhood yeah. Without Banners parties. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. Exactly. And I'm, 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 I mean, literally, I like sitting down more than I like standing up at this point in my life. Yeah. But George asked me if I would host the Nebulas, and I said, sure, even though I kind of felt unqualified because I, I, I hadn't been reading a lot of science fiction and fantasy, and I had a lot of, you know, a lot of these um, prejudices about what it was. I've had, I had a lot of misconceptions, I should say about what it was. And I accepted the job because it is my life's philosophy that if someone asks you to do something interesting, um, that you say yes. And if you feel that you are, uh, unqualified to do that interesting thing, then you make yourself qualified. And I'm very glad that I did because I decided that I, uh, should read as many of the nominated um, authors for best novel that year. And so I read uh, N.K. Jemison, Broken Earth Trilogy. The first two had come out at that point. I read those. I read Ancillary Justice and then um, the sequel by Anne Leckie. Uh, I read Ken Liu. I mean, I read these authors who absolutely are not living in the in the rut of quasi medieval England sword and sorcery, but we're nonetheless writing fantasy in profoundly provocative ways, drawing on many many different kinds of cultural associations, breaking my brain with you know new societies that I had to really pleasantly work my mind around in order to understand and live in. Uh, to me, it was so energizing. Uh, to read these works, um, and also fun. So I was really, it was, you know, for, for me, the, be the best experience of the Nebulas happened before I even got to the event in Chicago because um, I had opened my mind, and I'm still waiting for Ken Liu to bring out that third book in The in the Grace of Kings, or the, the, what, what's, it called? what's this trilogy called again? I can't remember. Has a, they refer it's to like, the trilogy as like the, the Silk. Dandelion. The Dan. The chrysanthemum. Let's find out. I should know. I, I, yeah, I said because I, I interviewed him about the book, so I, I should certainly know. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you right now. The dandelion dynasty. Okay, yeah. So he the the 
the the book the first book is the grace of kings the second book is the wall of storms and i want the next one very badly i feel like uh i feel like someone yelling at uh, george r r martin <laughs> at writing so when you say that you're friends with george r r martin do you see him like in what context would you see him well he's he's in new york tomorrow and he asked me to go have pizza with him and normally that, that is not a summons that i refuse but uh, I am on my way to San Francisco, unfortunately, for my book tour, so I'm going to miss him. But I've been out to Santa Fe a couple of times uh, to do a show, at uh, a comedy show at his uh, movie theater that he owns there, the Cocteau Theater. Uh, and, um, it, it, you know, it's all it's and to, and to visit Meow Wolf, which is the immersive art project that uh, he helped support. He, he did not have a creative hand in it. That's a young group of incredibly smart and interesting installation artists in Santa Fe who go by the name of Meow Wolf and George helped them secure a uh, abandoned bowling alley to turn into this incredible multi multimedia immersive experience that kind of, you know, beggars, uh, uh, beggars belief, never mind description. All I can say is go to Santa Fe and check it out. If anyone's curious about Meow Wolf, there's actually a really good documentary about how it came about that you should yeah. check out. Yeah, you should check it out. Um, you also did a live event with George uh, in New Jersey. That's There's a video of that online if anyone wants to watch I, it. Yeah, I had the pleasure of interviewing him at the Lowe's Theater in Jersey City, which is this massive old movie palace where George R. R. Martin used to go see movies when he was a kid in Bayonne. So it was fun for him. It's fun for George R. R. Martin to say, yes, I will give one interview. At the movie palace of my childhood. Reopen it, please. I, <laughs> I think it was still open, but you know. So has hanging out with George inspired you to write any of your own fantasy and science fiction? Well, you know, I think by the time of my third book of fake trivia, that is all, uh, that I was already, I, you know, I told in the margins a whole story about the end of the world that is about as close as I'm going to get to a fantasy epic. And this involved the world computer on the bottom of the ocean, uh, uh, finally deciding that, um, just finally deciding that humanity must go. It involved Stephen King waking up one day after society has collapsed and writing an extra 500 pages of the stand <laughs> and deciding to take that manuscript and read it to the last survivors of the apocalypse, uh, by pushing it around in a, in a, um, shopping cart from place to place. Uh, I wove a lot of science fiction and fantasy style tropes into that is all. And um, ultimately closed the book with the only true um, anything close to a novella that I've ever written, which was a, a, a story about a, a, a mysterious science fiction author told from the point of view of a famous minor um, television personality, former professional literary agent called, um, uh, Silapana. So that's something that, uh, I've done, but in terms of writing a novel, you know, I've written a lot of books, but I still don't think I have a novel length book in me yet. If I find one, I'll let you know. Hmm. And I'll, and whatever genre it is, I'll do it cause I'll feel grateful. Yeah, well, definitely, uh, definitely let us know if you if that ever happens. And so we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any just any final thoughts or just anything else you wanted to let people know about? No, a medallion status is available now. Uh, it is my latest book of non-fake facts, but in <laughs> fact, true stories. 
from my own strange and varied life, some of which you have just heard details of today. Uh, you can check it out by going to johnhodgman.com, which is my website. Uh, depending on when this comes out, uh, you might have a chance to see me on tour, either presenting the book in various cities around the country or traveling with my friend Jesse Thorne, presenting my podcast, Judge John Hodgman, live on stage. You can find out those details by going to johnhodgman.com slash tour. And, um, you know, Medallion Status is a pretty straightforward book about my my life as a famous minor television personality and all the secret rooms that it allowed me entrance to. But I will say that there are a couple of third-stage Guild Navigator references in there for the hardcore Dune fan, so you might enjoy it even so. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Hodgman about his new book, Medallion Status. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Take care. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to John Hodgman for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.